You're listening to Superpower Curiosity with Dr. Richard Gillette. And I'm Molly Ruth, producer for the podcast. In season one of Superpower Curiosity, we're exploring divisiveness and how to get beyond it. This is also the subject of Richard's recent book, It's a Freaking Mess, How to Thrive in Divisive Times. In this episode, Richard discusses how to protect yourself from divisive influence in the media in an excerpt from It's a Freaking Mess. Here we go. It's three o'clock in the morning, and I'm lying in bed upset about what I saw on TV, about a decision a politician made that I believe will cause many people to suffer. I cannot change this politician's decision, certainly not in the near future, and probably never. So the question is, how do I handle my own reaction in a way that doesn't cause me to suffer? Ongoing suffering about such matters is neither necessary nor useful. I don't mean that harshly. I just mean that such reactions don't really help anyone, and that there are ways to avoid these reactions. There are many levels of dealing with this, which I'll come to later. One of the simplest and most easily effective, the subject of this chapter, is to control our own input of divisive news. This is something over which each of us has complete power. It is our decision when to take in divisive news, in what form to take it in, and how much to take in. Most of us don't even think to protect ourselves in these ways. When we see and hear divisive politics, it's easy to discount the effect this will have on us. Well, it's the same old stuff. I'm, I'm pretty used to it by now. Yes, most of us are used to it, it's true but still it affects our mental and emotional state. Even if we don't feel annoyed or upset at the time, angry or fear-laden thoughts may reverberate later and reduce the quality of our sleep or diminish the pleasure of our day. As I mentioned in chapter two, news sells best when it exaggerates or creates drama and alarm. The more adrenaline a media company can get you to secrete, the more financially successful they will be. One of the ways for media to get the adrenaline running is through publicizing political conflict in the news, adding spice in the form of out-of-context quotes, and focusing on the moments of greatest verbal or physical violence. It's valuable, I think, to maintain a healthy skepticism by looking at the ways in which a media article, tweet, video, or newsfeed may be geared by financial incentive to rile us, divide us, adrenalize us. And then, to question. Do I want to be a pawn of media corporations, making them money while I hurt myself, physically and mentally, by drinking the toxicity of repeated alarm? Do I want to be a pawn of the rumor mongers on social media, boosting their reader traffic while I hurt myself physically and mentally by drinking the toxicity of repeated alarm. If you do not want to be a media pawn, there are at least three things you can quite easily change. You can change the timing of the news you take in. 
you can reduce the quantity of the news you take in, and you can change the tone of the media you take in. Change the timing of taking in news. Whatever our minds are engaged with right before we go to bed is what we tend to carry with us into the night. Then, in the silence and the dark, somehow our feelings, especially of fear or anger, tend to become magnified. Fear or anger creates adrenaline. Adrenaline interferes with the rhythm of sleep. You may watch the news and go to bed with no awareness of any upset until you wake up early with an unpleasant scene from the news replaying in your mind. Or maybe you waken at your usual time without feeling refreshed because the rhythm and depth of your sleep has been affected by the tension you carried into the bedroom the night before. When you see violent images, the long-term effects are often much greater. Eyes are the predominant sense organ in human beings with the most connections in our brains and images have a much more powerful emotive effect than words alone. I mentioned waking at 3am upset about a political decision that I'd seen on TV. And yes, I'd been watching this program just before going to bed. The logical answer? Don't listen to the news before going to bed. Hey, but wait a minute, I tell myself. I need to know what the news is. That's fine, says the voice of reason. Just make sure you schedule news time in the morning, afternoon, or early evening. How early is early? I ask. Give yourself two hours of divisiveness-free time before going to sleep. You'll sleep better. Hmm, well, I know from experience that this works better for me, I admitted, but I don't often do it. That's because, explained the irritatingly helpful voice of reason, it is easier to keep replaying our habits even if we know they hurt us. It takes a little effort to change our habits. But once we institute a new habit in those last two hours of our day, a habit of doing tasks, having conversations, reading and seeing information that's uplifting, it becomes pleasant and quite easy. But wait, I continue, I wasn't actually watching the evening news. I was watching an entertaining late-night talk show that, well, satirized the news. The same applies. If you want to sleep long and deep, don't watch anything in those shows that gets you mad or worried right before going to bed. Since you usually don't know what's coming in those shows, it's not so easy to avoid adrenaline-inducing and divisiveness, unless you desist altogether. I like watching these shows, and satirizing other people's divisiveness can be funny. That's fine. You can have it both ways. You can sleep well and also enjoy any amount of divisiveness in full, unexpurgated, late-night political shows, just so long as you don't watch them late at night. It's a little scheduling adjustment. Watch them in the morning or afternoon, or if you have to, early evening. When I succeed in desisting from playing the mouse caught in the glue trap of a news habit, I do tend to sleep and feel better. Sometimes I watch late-night shows while I'm working out in the early morning. As for the evening, my rule, which I mostly follow, making exceptions for social and other reasons, 
is to make the last two hours before I go to bed kind of sacrosanct. Meaning that in those last two hours I avoid, so far as I can, churning my mind with divisive topics and focus instead on things that are neutral, relaxing, and, if possible, uplifting. Here's what you can do in the evening to protect the restfulness of your sleep. In the last two hours before going to bed, experiment with any or all of the following. First of all, here are the things to avoid in order to sleep better. Avoid watching TV or internet programs that are divisive and may stoke worry, fear, anger, or how could they reactions. Avoid reading books or articles that are divisive and may stoke worry, fear, anger, or how could they reactions. Avoid watching or reading thrillers that increase your heart rate. Avoid watching or reading anything that riles or churns your mind. Avoid aerobic exercise in the last two hours before sleep. Aerobic exercise increases adrenaline output, which tends to keep you awake. On the other hand, aerobic exercise early in the day helps you sleep more deeply at night. Here are the things you can do in the last two hours before bed in order to sleep better. Mental tasks that are relaxing. Physical tasks that do not get you out of breath. In other words, are not aerobic. Exercises that are centering or relaxing, such as gentle yoga, tai chi, relaxation techniques. Hobbies that don't require a computer screen. Conversations with loved ones. Reading or listening to uplifting thoughts. Playing or listening to relaxing music. Writing down three things that happened that day that you are grateful for. This is especially effective when it's the last thing you do before going to sleep. Finally, if you're worried about the many things you need to get done, a worry that might carry into your sleep, list these many things. Prioritize the list and schedule your prioritized items in a time frame that's doable. At the very least, write down the list so that you don't go to sleep worrying about whether you might forget something that's important to you. Reduce the quantity of news intake. News is supposed to be new, but when you listen to the news frequently, what you get is not news, it's olds. You see and hear events repeated again and again from different people and from slightly different angles. One news item can stretch over days, weeks, or months. When an important person comments on the news, this becomes news. And then when a second important person disagrees with the first important person, it is more news with an added touch of divisive drama. Your knowledge is hardly being expanded, but your outrage is. And of course, outrage increases viewership, clicks, sales, and insomnia. So, how do we make sure we learn what we need regarding what is going on without getting hooked into repetition and continuing outrage? What is a healthy news diet? In experimenting with this, I found the following two steps very helpful. One, try a news fast for a week. 
If you don't need the news for your work, desist from seeing or hearing any news at all for seven whole days. Then, after a week, listen to the news and see what you missed. Most times, you won't have missed very much because the same kind of stories repeat themselves week after week, different nuances, different details, but usually the same characters and the same plot. The one-week newsfast method helps wean you from dependence on the drama of the news that the news media would, for financial reasons, prefer you to stay dependent on. Two, then try a healthy news diet. For the longer term, choose your medium of news reception and make sure you receive the news no more than once a day. Some people choose once a week, for instance, via a weekly magazine. And some people choose less than that. Thomas Jefferson wrote, I do not take a single newspaper, nor read one a month, and I feel myself infinitely happier for it. Henry Thoreau advised, Read not the times, read the eternities. Of course, neither Jefferson nor Thoreau had smartphones. One of the hardest aspects of maintaining a healthy news diet may be handling the temptation of your smartphone. The problem is that your smartphone is only about 1% phone. The other 99% is a complex distraction machine designed to tease you into as many clicks and links as possible. And not just randomly. That machine has already calculated exactly what distracts you the most and goes for it, playing masterfully on your weaknesses, leading you inexorably to the advertisements it flashes before your eyes. You might think, well, I can easily outsmart that phone by avoiding news items and by not reading any of those annoying ads. But it's not called a smartphone for nothing. Sometimes you pick up your phone to make a phone call. Seems a reasonable thing to do. But before you make the call, you've fallen headlong into the algorithmic fog of distraction. And then you find yourself reading some alarming news item or clicking on a dramatic link. Perhaps you don't even remember whom you're going to phone, or even that you were going to make a phone call at all. Some people handle all this by using a landline for their phone calls. But for the majority who do not have landlines, we need to stay firm in the discipline of not slipping and sliding into our newsfeed except at the times we designate. Good luck with that. Or, and this may be a thousand times easier, disconnect your newsfeed. When I did this, I suddenly found I had more time in my day, and I was free of breaking news. That's news that breaks your concentration and good feeling. Change the tone of the media you access. If you don't want to suffer the turmoil, anger, and fear that comes from imbibing divisiveness with all the long-term damage it can cause to your mental and physical health, avoid divisive media. This is easy for me to recommend, but not so easy for most of us to put into practice because we tend to become addicted to the particular styles of drama that are applied by the channels we are used to. Highly partisan news media create powerful drama that is super tempting for many of us to watch. But it is almost impossible to come away from such newscasting 
without being riled by the awful things the other side has done. It can be helpful to know who owns the news media you follow, and whether the owner has a vested interest in portraying the news in a particular way, or in trying to divide us in a particular direction. In 1960, the American journalist A.J. Liebling wrote, Freedom of the press is guaranteed only to those who own one. This was true in 1960, and is more obviously true today. Since the acceleration of media mergers, most popular media is now in the hands of very few media conglomerates, most of them owned or directed by a very rich person who effectively wields immense powers of persuasion. Media moguls tend to accumulate fortunes and are usually more likely to support those politicians who offer them the biggest tax breaks and who are less likely to stop them from buying out competing media. Owners of media have the power to hire, direct, and fire any editor or writer they want. In this way, the owner's views become the views expressed by the media they own. In March 1997, for example, Rupert Murdoch ordered the Sun newspaper in Britain to support the leader of the Labour Party, Tony Blair, for Prime Minister. Overriding the views of the Sun's editorial board, which had been consistently right-wing, and preferred the Conservative Party candidate, John Major. The editors had no choice if they wanted to keep their jobs. Murdoch had a financial interest in Blair's winning, and therefore in rousing his readers against the other contenders. In a British social science study that looked at the effects of Murdoch's directive, researchers estimated that the Sun's endorsement of Blair, forced by Murdoch's directive, were associated with approximately 525,000 extra votes for the Labour Party. Murdoch's prime motive, according to this research, was to protect his media companies at a time of government interest in breaking up media monopolies, something that Blair would not do. It seems that half a million people had changed their vote because it was in one man's financial interest for them to do so. The Sun did not, of course, explain to its readers the prime reason for its about-face from Conservative to Labour. Knowing who controls the media you read and watch helps you to begin to fathom the bias that is coming your way. If someone offers you a drink, it's good to know if that person is a friend or an enemy. In the same way, it's good to know what the motives are of the person controlling the news you drink in every day. What are they spinning? and why. Even when you have a sense of this kind of bias, however, it isn't easy to avoid being swayed by the divisive items you see or read. As human beings, our fear and anger responses bypass our intellect, and so it is easy to be seduced into taking sides, even with the intellectual understanding that there is likely to be bias. Added to this is another temptation, Anger, for all its negative effects, can be exciting, and the drama can be addictively entertaining. If it were just one or two short-lived dramas, no big deal, perhaps. But divisive battles on the news go on and on, month after month, year after year, with little respite. And most of us suffer from our involvement with this constant divisiveness more than we might realise. It eats away at our peace of mind. 
There are many more innocuous choices we can make. For example, using media that do not support a particular political party or denigrate the opposing party. Using media that do not have an angry or divisive tone. Using media that give adequate sources for their information and try to present facts rather than just opinion. In addition, I recommend checking out who owns the media you take into your precious mind. What does the owner stand for? In what ways will his desire for more market share influence the news he is willing to tell? I say his and he because at this time the media moguls are all men. You can change whom you follow based on the results you find. The media you choose can make a big difference to your peace of mind. Very few media meet all the criteria above, but there are some that meet most. When I was researching this topic, I tried googling media bias and came across the media bias chart. The media bias chart is distinguished by the fact that pretty well no one agrees with it. According to Market Watch, this is because almost everyone thinks the media they choose is balanced. According to the media bias chart's stated methodology, Information is derived from rule-based analyses of individual articles and TV news sources, each rating carried out by three analysts with different political views, left, right, and center. How valid are these ratings? I cannot say, but seeing a whole spectrum of news sources in a visual, arranged according to possible bias, is certainly food for thought. Of course, we tend to get pretty attached to the media we are accustomed to. But there's nothing stopping us from experimenting with new media, knowing that we can always change our minds. If you do experiment with other media, I suggest going cold turkey on the old one for at least a month. It's difficult to give the new a fair trial without dropping the old. If you end up choosing a more balanced voice, you'll probably lose a certain amount of adrenalizing drama, but you might at the same time gain some equanimity. Which will you prefer? Thank you for listening to Superpower Curiosity with Dr. Richard Gillette. As always, if you have a question or comment for Richard, you can send an email or voice memo to superpowercuriosity at gmail.com. If you're enjoying the show, we have a favor to ask you. Please help us reach more people by taking a moment to leave a review and or tell a friend about the podcast. Episode 9 is scheduled to come out in two weeks, so subscribe now to hear Richard's take on how to protect yourself from divisive influences in party politics. Till next time, stay curious.